Sean. Uh, welcome, Sean. Thank you. No? There we go. Oh, wow. Okay. Clear. Well, it's good to be with you. And uh, I know uh, it seems like it hasn't been too long since I was with you all. I've been seeing you all a lot lately, so that's nice. Nice. Good to to see you and, and uh, rejoice in what God is doing here in Clovis. And uh, I uh, pray for you guys regularly. And uh, I know you pray for us. And so... We are grateful for that, and uh, so I'm glad to be able to come and, and to share uh, fellowship with you and uh, to to open God's Word uh, with you. The last time I was with you, not that you'll remember, but uh, I uh, started in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and talking about the what Paul calls what is of first importance, right? The the gospel, the the historical truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was uh, buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And uh, we saw there in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the first part, that that, that truth, that, 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 that Jesus Christ um, died for us and rose again for us, that that truth of the gospel changes everything about our lives, about how we view all things, the, the world, uh, our lives and the world around us. And so this afternoon, I want to kind of continue down uh, that road in understanding the significance of the resurrection as Paul uh, lays it out for us there in First Corinthians 15 and, and the implications that that truth has uh, for our lives today. And so we're going to read together and then talk about First uh, Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 34. So if you'll turn there with me, I will read it. it this is God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the 
the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to put to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, this is the word of our God. Thanks be to God for his holy and inerrant word. Well, some of you may be familiar with the uh, the, the Pascal's Wager. It's uh, an apologetic or philosophical argument, if you will, uh, that was raised by the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal and is still in use in, in some circles today. And Pascal's wager goes something like this, that, that God either exists or he doesn't. And since we can't know for sure, we must bet on which one we think is probably, most probably true. And since the potential loss of eternity in hell, if God does exist and the person wagers that he does not, since that far outweighs the consequence of what would only be a temporal loss in this life if he doesn't exist, then the, the rational person ought to wager that God exists and live his life accordingly. That's Pascal's wager. And perhaps you've heard it said more recently, something like this, that you're you're better off living as though God does exist and the Christian faith is true, because if it is true and you don't believe it, then the consequences are eternal. But if it isn't true and you lived as though you believed it, then you really haven't lost anything. You've lived a, a good moral life, but simply found out at the end that it wasn't true. Perhaps you've heard that argument made. And while that may sound like a reasonable argument when we hear it, and perhaps it uh, um, appeals to us in, in a sense, what we're going to see and, and what we see in this passage is that that is not the way Scripture argues for the resurrection. That is not what God's Word tells us about the, the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's, it's not a matter of probability. It's either true or it is a lie. And whether or not it is true determines ultimately whether we have lived a life 
that is worth living. Or if we have ultimately lived a lie. And so I want to look at this passage in two parts uh, this afternoon. Uh, And very simply, number one, truth. And number two, consequences. And I'm going to look at those in reverse order, beginning with the consequences. And when we talk about consequences, we're talking here about the consequences that exist if there is no resurrection. In verse 12, Paul begins here by saying, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently there were some in Corinth who believed that there would be no future resurrection. And we're we're not really exactly sure what they believed, but nevertheless, Paul says that to deny the resurrection, and we're talking here about the the physical resurrection of of the, the whole person of Jesus, the body and the spirit of Jesus, that that to deny that resurrection has certain consequences. And Paul uh, outlines these a little bit here for us. First of all, in verse 13, he says this. If there's no bodily resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, verse 14 says, and your faith is in vain. And it's an interesting word there about being vain. It carries the idea of empty, right? Or without contents, absolutely void. Meaningless might be another way to put it. In other words, if you take out the resurrection, our faith and our message is meaningless. If you take out the resurrection, there's no gospel. There's no forgiveness of sins. As verse 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why? Because if Christ has not been raised, then He has not won the victory over sin. Just as, as Christ had to uh, physically uh, die on the cross as our representative on the cross, just as it was necessary for Him to do that, to be our substitute in order to pay For our sins, since it was in his physical death that he paid for our sins. So it is necessary that he be raised physically from the dead as our representative having victory over sin and death. And so if he didn't do it, if he wasn't raised from the dead, Paul says, then we are still in our sins. If he didn't do it, everything that he accomplished in his earthly life, right? all, all the things that he did, his perfect obedience, his, his suffering, his death on the cross. You see, it's not enough that he was just a good teacher. It's, it's not enough right, that he, he did all of those things, that he was a, a prophet and all of that, but, but, but rather... 
He had to raise from the dead to give us life. And Paul says not only that, but those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. Right? If Christ hasn't been raised, then there's, there's no hope of future resurrection and glory for any of us. Once you die, you die, and that is the end of the story. And I know there are some who believe that, but that doesn't give us much hope, does it? That's not what Paul is is talking about in these verses. And and Paul doesn't stop there. He he goes on in verse 15 and, and takes it even, I would say, a step further. He says there that if we are preaching Christ as raised from the dead and he is not, then we are, in fact, misrepresenting God. I mean, that's a pretty significant charge, isn't it? In other words, we're not just a little bit wrong if we're proclaiming the resurrection and it didn't actually happen, but uh, we are, in fact, bearing false witness about God. That we are actually liars before God and others. In other words, contrary to Pascal's wager, if we are living as though the resurrection is is true, that it actually happened, and we're saying that the gospel is true when in fact it isn't, then we are not living a good life. Rather, we are living a lie. We are in fact deceitful people that are perpetuating something that is untrue. And therefore, we are worthy of condemnation. If the resurrection is not true, and it is only in this life that we have hoped in Christ, then we have to agree with what Paul says in verse 19, that we're most to be pitied. Why? Because if that is true, if, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we've wasted our lives. You guys just wasted, you're wasting your Sunday afternoon. You wasted your Sunday morning. We've missed out on what is actually important if the resurrection is not true. Right? Instead of, of loving and serving God and others, we ought to be looking to uh, seek out our own interests, to fulfill our own desires. We should make the most of our time here on earth by you know, enjoying all of the pleasures of this life and doing so to our heart's content. But as Paul says, or as Paul says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's a, it's a famous saying in the ancient world that simply men enjoy life in the here and now, folks, because this is as good as it's going to get. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then that's exactly what we should be doing. If Christ did not raise from the dead, then as I said, we are wasting our time. We should not kid ourselves anymore. But there's good news, friends, right? As Paul says in verse 20, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that brings us to our, our second point, the truth of the resurrection. 
that Christ has been raised. It is a a physical, a historical reality. And in verse 20, Paul says that Christ is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. And that that uh, figure of the first fruits. Now, we live in an agricultural area, so we ought to be somewhat familiar with it. But I don't know. None of you are farmers, I don't think. So maybe you're not. But um, the, the, the first fruits is that first portion of the harvest. OK, it's it's considered the the, the best portion, but it's the the representative portion of the entire harvest. And. Not only is it representative, but it it serves as a guarantee of the rest of the harvest that will come in as well. And so that's what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the first fruit. He is that representative portion. He is that guarantee of the whole resurrection of our Resurrection. In other words, because Christ has risen from the dead, so our resurrection on the last day is guaranteed. And Paul goes on to explain further this idea of Jesus as our representative. And he does so in verses 21 to 22 when he makes this contrast between Adam and Christ. And he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so here we see these two representatives of all of humanity. Right? In other words, all of humanity either goes and is represented by Adam or all of humanity or humanity is represented in Christ. Okay? So we either have one of these two As our representative head. Now, we all start with Adam as our head, right? We are all descendants of Adam. We all uh, are born into the world in sin because of Adam, because he is our father, because we are of the same nature as Adam, because through Adam, through his sin, sin has come to all mankind. Whereas Christ... On the other hand, through Christ comes life and resurrection. Now, some people object to this idea that we would have a representative, right? That uh, our eternal state depends upon the actions of someone else. That it's not really fair that we would be accountable for Adam's sin, right? I mean, the, the thinking goes, right? We didn't, know, we didn't disobey God in the garden. Adam did. So why do I have to pay for Adam? Well, the reality is, right, the end result would be the same. We would have failed just as Adam failed. But thanks be to God that this idea of a representative head does not end with Adam, but it also is found in Christ. That just as God made Adam our representative in the garden, so He made Jesus our representative in His incarnation. 
that Jesus was our representative in being when he was born a man, made like us in every way and lived a perfect life. He represented us in that. He represented us when he died that death on the cross, pain for our sins. He represented us when he rose victorious over sin and death. And because he, if we are in him, if we trust in him, and he is our true representative, if we are in him, we will then participate in all that he describes in these verses in verses 23 and following the resurrection on the last day when he says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. When it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. We have this snapshot really of of what will happen on that last day that Christ will return and those who are in Christ will be raised and then Christ will destroy all of his enemies the last of which is death and he will hand the kingdom over to the Father, having completed that work which He voluntarily undertook on our behalf to redeem us from our sin. Having subjected Himself to the will of the Father and redeeming a people for Himself through His messianic work. And there's a lot you know, that could be said about the, the sequence of events here and, and all of that. But... We need to simply see that what is described here, that that this is true. This is certain to come to pass because Jesus Christ has secured it in His resurrection. That on that last day, Christ will return and those who belong to Him will be raised. Death will be destroyed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as we as we sit here and we think upon these things is have we bowed the knee to Jesus? Have we confessed with our mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we haven't, if, if we wait until that last day, then it will be too late. The Scripture does tell us that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But for some, it will be a confession leading to, to torment.
an admission ultimately of guilt, of having rejected the Lordship of Christ. But for those who confess Jesus as Lord today, it is a confession of of hope. It is a confession of life forevermore. Now, there is this business about the baptism of the dead uh, there in verse 29. And there's some mystery about what uh, Paul is talking about there. It it seems that the Corinthians were baptizing people on behalf of those who had already died and uh, in order that some of them might be received uh, or might receive some benefit post post mortem. Um, but I would say this, in mentioning this, Paul's not sanctioning the practice. He's, he's really pointing out the inconsistency of the Corinthians, who were on one hand denying the resurrection, and on the other hand, were engaging in this baptism for the dead. He said these two things, they don't go together. But regardless, the point that Paul is making is that because Christ has risen from the dead, so it is certain that Christ will come again on the last day and we will be raised with Him. But for those who are not in Christ but are in Adam, it will be a day of condemnation. It will be a day in which they are counted among the enemies of God who are ultimately destroyed along with death and thrown into the lake of fire. And so, we must call upon Christ this day while it is still called today. As Paul says in verse 34, wake up. (laughs) Do not go on sinning. In other words, stop denying the truth. Stop pretending that that there is no future judgment. That there is no future judgment. Hope, rather, live today in light of that truth. Live today in light of the fact that because Jesus has risen from the dead, you have a sure and certain hope that one day you too will be raised forevermore. You see, because Christ has risen from the dead, we need not fear the future if we are in Christ. There's a lot of bad things that go on in the world and a lot of difficult things that happen in our lives that can discourage us and make us feel hopeless. But if we are in Christ, the truth is that the the pains of this life, even death itself, is but a temporary reality. A temporary reality that will seem but fleeting in the light of eternity. But even more than that, if we are in Christ, we have so much to live for today. We have in Christ a foretaste of that eternal glory which we will share with Him forevermore. We have the 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 future brought into the present, the the eternal brought into 
the here and now. That we, in fact, today, can know the forgiveness of sins. We can know fellowship with God through Christ. We can live and delight in the fact that death no longer has dominion over us. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we can walk in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. We can walk in love for God and one another because why? Because Christ has loved us and has given Himself up for us. That's the life that we have now. How do we do this? We don't do it by our own strength, right? It is by the the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, right? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For He has been given all authority and power and He has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. He who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of God with glory and great joy on the last day when we will enter His presence forevermore. So let us, let us look to Christ, dear friends, and let me pray.